The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the latest monthly FDF issues update webinar for August, where we have an awful lot to get through, so I'll keep the introduction brief up front. My name is Dominic Goody. I'm Head of International Trade at the Food and Drink Federation. Uh, and today we'll be running through some of the usual updates, including the political developments from James Hawkins. We'll have a focus on the border operating model announcements from the government uh, in the last month, as well as uh, updates on the Northern Ireland Protocol and the command paper published by the UK government. And then we'll follow that up with uh, a lot of different updates on, on Wales, on Scotland, on FDS Project Propeller to support businesses with uh, the new sort of customs requirements for EU, uh, the Henry Dimbleby review, a couple of FDF reports, uh, one on food prices and the second on inclusion and diversity. And then we'll finish up with updates around the UK innovation strategy and the lifetime skills guarantee. Uh, there is an icon. If there are questions that you want to ask privately, please do get in touch with either myself or with Ian by uh, uh, emailing ian.wright at fdf.org.uk and we'll be delighted to help you. Uh, we'll have a Q&A session at the end uh, with Ian's updates on the latest developments. So without further ado, I will now pass over to James Hawkins, who will be running through the key political developments that we've seen over the last month since the last webinar. Thanks, Dominic. Uh, so three quick slides from me. Uh, obviously, it's, it's, we're now in August, so it's a bit, it's, it's obviously a bit quiet. Parliament's in recess and we've slightly gone to, into silly season. The first, uh, the first slide that you see there is Ireland. Um, the kind of major political announcement uh, that was made um, on, the, on the EU relations uh, and with specific reference to Northern Ireland was just before Parliament uh, went into recess on the 21st of July when Brendan Lewis, uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary in the Commons, and Lord Frost making a more or less simultaneous announcement um, uh, statement there, uh, said that the government wanted a new balance in the, in the relationship especially towards uh, with regards to the protocol and wanted to basically kind of renegotiate it. The EU rejected that proposal. Um, I know Luke's going to um, going to talk about that in more detail, but that was the, the kind of the kind of where they where the UK government have got to. Uh, and then just covering some of the trade things, it's mainly kind of technical stuff at the, at the moment, uh, no real major announcements. So uh, July the 19th, there was a launch of a consultation into the developing countries trading scheme. Uh, that's just to replace the UK generalised scheme for preferences, and that uh, closes on the 12th of September. There's also, uh, looking ahead, we're expecting an agreement in principle um, uh, between UK and New, and, and New Zealand, expecting that towards uh, the end of this month or maybe early September. And there's also a 14-week uh, pre-spoken consultation for a future trade deal with India. Uh, the FDA, FDF is currently preparing its response to that. Uh, we've got a guidance for members on the status of all uh, trade negotiations. So if you follow that link, uh, you can have a look um, at where we are with particular country of interest that you may have. If we go to the next slide, uh, looking at COVID, um, the, I mean, the cons around this, as I'm sure everyone's aware, have been pretty all over the place. It's been a quite a confusing picture. But the main, the main announcement just to, uh, that we had was on the 19th of July, England, had its Freedom Day when most uh, social restrictions uh, were eased, and that was followed up by Scotland um, for the 3rd of August and Wales by the 7th of August. So, so three kind of countries around the UK have come into alignment there. 
And around, other than that, it was the general kind of biffles around the pandemic and what the government was going to do about it, eventually, um, uh, eventually making clear that it would make some concessions to various industries, including uh, food, to a magic 500 uh, companies, including food and drink manufacturers, after quite a lot of actually of lobbying uh, from the FDF and from Ian uh, speaking directly to government. Uh, on the 4th of August, just to, just to, uh, just that last announcement, well, that the UK government is going to try and offer vaccines to 16 and 17 year olds, so trying to get itself in front of any kind of a new wave of cases before the school starts again. If we go to the third slide, uh, I have general politics and economics. Uh, the, the three themes kind of coming through are this, the uh, macroeconomic things, which are beginning to come to the fore, the food strategy and the environmental agenda, which, which was announced yesterday. Just looking at the macroeconomic, uh, inflation figures uh, are beginning to tick upwards, 2.5% uh, for June, uh, which was more than the 2.1% recorded in May. And various economic commentators are saying that they expect inflation to be 4% by the end of the year. Actually, what's also interesting is that if you look on the 26th of July notice there, leading economists suggesting that the official inflation rate is being understated by the Office for National Statistics, and it could already be at 2.8. Um, that said, the economy is growing at its fastest level in 80, 80 years, uh, with the um, the EY Item Club uh, predicting 7.6%, uh, which is obviously something that is buoying the government, um, despite their uh, rather confused comms. Um, on the 15th of July, Henry Dimbleby uh, published his uh, contribution uh, to the National Food Strategy uh, Part 2, uh, which made various recommendations, including a, a proposed tax on salt and sugar, as well as uh, calls of the publication of company sales data. Um, that same day, uh, when the Parliament, when the Prime Minister Robert was actually make, was making a speech on what levelling up was, not that he said much detail, uh, he he stated in a, in a question and answer from the media that he was not in favour of any taxes that would incre increase food food costs. So that kind of element of Dimbleby's contribution has been uh, scotched. Uh, yesterday, uh, the United Nations Climate uh, Report stated that 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold for global warming. Could be reached within uh, the next decade or, or within 20 years and so this is a, just building that drumbeat of, uh, of pressure to actually find some agreements at COP26 summit in November in Glasgow which if you look at other media reports is looking like it, uh, the government is not quite sure whether they're going to be able to make any major announcements just because there isn't an international consensus yet. Uh, so looking at the uh, my last slide just the state of play Government comms uh, still slightly all over the place with regard to COVID and the pandemic. Uh, they are struggling to get a consistent approach with regard to keeping the economy open and travel restrictions. That said, they are managing to maintain just about an opinion poll lead. It's slightly helped by the fact that the Labour is still struggling to craft its own clear position on COVID. Uh, but both parties, you can see over the past couple of weeks, have been trying to kind of uh, return to focus on, on retail political issues like crime and, uh, and, and, and tax and other things like that. Um, last week, Conservative Home, uh, it, does a, it does a monthly um, survey of what party members, Conservative Party members, think about their, 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 their different um, uh, leading politicians. Uh, Boris Johnson's uh, uh, ratings plummeted and Rishi Sunak rose uh, quite high and he was now in second place behind Liz Truss. So this was kind of one thing that was was putting pressure on the Prime Minister. 
he hadn't helped himself by making some rather clumsy remarks when he joined his visit to Scotland around, uh, around how Thatcher was leading the economic agenda when she was closing, um, sorry, environmental agenda when she was closing coal mines, hasn't really gone down well with some of those red wall seats. Um, and there's been some kind of stories emerging and being denied and claiming and denied, etc. that he uh, joked about demoting Rishi Sunak uh, to, to be health secretary and maybe putting in Liz Truss as chancellor, all denied, but it hasn't helped that kind of idea that there's a, there's a cohesive government uh, approach at the moment. That said, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the macro, despite macroeconomic warnings about inflation rises, the government is really kind of looking at those big economic growth figures that it's got, um, that are being published and being forecast, and thinking that is going to kind of, is going to ride that wave uh, through, through the autumn and the rest of the year. So that is what uh, is keeping uh, a smile on their faces just about. Anyway, with that, I will hand over to Luke, who's going to cover Northern Ireland and the EU relations. Thank you, James. Yeah, as Ben mentioned, we're going to cover the border operating model that's published on the week commencing 19th of July and Northern Ireland. So on the border operating model, the introduction of EU import controls, it's just useful to kind of give a bit of a recap around where the key points are and which points they're going to come in and what points they bring in. So 1st of July, which has already happened about last month, uh, brings in the requirements on the delayed declaration schemes that a lot of companies have been operating where you could delay your customs declarations for six months. What this date means is that some of those declarations that were brought in in early January, February, they're going to start to be able to kind of need to be submitted by traders um, on from those points onwards. And HMRC have published some quite helpful guidance around if you haven't captured that data at the point of import in properly and you are struggling to the customs declaration around how to do that, they have published that and it's quite helpful for traders. You are also going to need at the point of submission something called Customs Freight Simplified Procedures, CFSP, or the agent to have CFSP at the point of submission. It's the customs easements that allows the trader to be able to access those delayed declarations. On 1st of October, this is about the SPS introduction. So there are going to be uh, new uh, health certification and pre-notification requirements for products out of origin, fish and animal byproducts. Now there is an extra requirement on high risk food, not of animal origin, which is sorts of nuts and spices around stuff that's coming to the EU uh, from non-EU sources that will have to be pre-notified and uh, accompanied with the original non-EU certification on on that one. On this um, introduction of SPS controls, it's important to note that there isn't going to be any physical customs hold on consignments moving into the UK. This is just a purely remote basis. Uh, the pre-notification is also going to be a reduced data set compared to what is required on traces as it will be on IPAS, which is the UK's own system. Uh, we don't yet know what that actually simplified data set is, but we're still chasing DEFRA on that one. And I think, you know, DEFRA very much see this point as a, a learning phase for traders in the run up to the 1st of January. And, you know, there's going to be no real objections or consignments on this. What they have said that can do is any errors or mistakes that have been made on the certification will be followed up with traders and pointed out to them to make sure that they don't uh, make the same mistakes again. On to the next phase uh, on this one is split into two parts on the 1st of January. So the first bit is around the kind of customs stuff that starts to come in. Um, so the delayed declaration grace periods are phased off. So you know the CFSP light that I mentioned earlier going to get switched off, and you have to kind of do the, the customs declaration before the good enters the UK free circulation. So it's important that that kind of gives you less flex when you're bringing products into the country. You know around less flex around changing routes or the loads on the, on on that one. And then the ending of the supply declaration grace periods for rules of origin purposes. Now you don't actually need the supply declaration at the point of import, but 
HMRC or the EU customs authorities might start to kind of audit some of those um, claims for rules of origin and that's when those supplier declarations are needed. Uh, there will also the portal begin to operate either two custom systems for EU to GB move, movements. That will either be the pre-lodgement movement, uh, pre-lodgement uh, custom system, which will be the more for the row row locations or the temporary storage, which will typically be your container ports. Now for those that are going to be operating the pre-lodgement models, so, you know, take like Dover or Holyhead, that will be you know row row locations. You will have to use the goods vehicle movement system which had a breakfast but federal requirements to part uh, or move around and then first of January this brings in the physical checks on um, you know, sanitary and sanitary products so product on origin high risk food not on origin fish products they have to enter via a BCP for the documentary ID and physical check uh, and this is probably where the pre-notification time requirements are probably going to come in rather as opposed to first of October because you need to give the port sufficient notice that that product going to be uh, and that one and then this is where also the regulated plant and plant products will start to require health certification and pre-notification ipads uh, that's things like the fruit and veg need to buy those sanctuaries to put by an official inspector and then on march the 1st 2022 this is when the requirements for live animals and those regulated plant and plant products will need to present at bcp for those checks uh, and inspections at the point of entry we could move on to the next slide please Dominic. So I thought it would just be useful just to touch on phases one and uh, two and three, uh, which is around 1st of October and 1st of January in some detail to kind of run through what the process is and kind of flow it will look like. So on 1st of October, um, the initial bit will be around making sure the the, the supplier, your supplier, uh, is an approved establishment for that product. So, you know, if it's a dairy product, that they need to be an approved establishment for producing dairy and, you know, kind of all of those kind of products, categories, you know, meat, fish, uh, and the like, and they will need to be listed on IPAS as the, as have been the similar requirements for UK to EU have been have had to be listed on traces. Um, there will be the need to get the EHC, so you need to arrange the for the EHC, get the OB in to sign that um, certificate, and make sure you're going for the proper uh, inspections for that one. It will then have to be uploaded onto IPAS. As we mentioned, there's going to be a simplified data set for the first of October, first of January phase. Don't know exactly what, what boxes of data is going to be required, but it's going to be about 15 fields of data that DEFRA want from traders. You'll then need to kind of give the all of the EHC and the relevant information. The all of the documentary check will be done remotely, it's important to note. So there's going to be nothing at the border, it'll all be done in a central system by APA, and then they will divide it up to the relevant port health authorities to do the checks on this certification. Now, as mentioned earlier, this is DEFRA are looking at this as a learning phase, there is going to be no physical customs hold. So any issues or errors on the certificates will be done post movement by APA to the traders uh, on that one, and they don't need to inspire a BCP. And then once all that's done, the UK product is in free circulation. So essentially, it's kind of you know the customs continues as it is, but the changes in the SPS documentary needs there's no physical customs hold on those ones. And then once you get to the first of January for your typical product animal movements, when you start to see the full processes that have been seen for e, uh, UK to EU movements. So as with first of October, you need to make sure you're sourcing this from the necessary approved establishment. Uh, you'll need to get the EHC ready, it'll need to be signed by the vet, they'll need to kind of inspect it, make sure it's moving uh, under the requirements set out on the EHC. It will need to be pre-notified on IPAS. This will be the full data requirements on IPAS. It won't be the simplified system anymore. Um, and this is probably where you're going to see the requirements by Port Health authorities to kind of give sufficient pre-notification. 
So in the legislation, there is the requirement to do this in advance of 24 hours before the good enters the BCP. And there is some flex in the legislation around uh, you know, the use of four hours where there are logistical constraints, but this is something you probably want to kind of arrange with your Port Health Authority uh, in advance of the 1st of January. You also have to study export uh, and exit summary declarations on the EU side, that'll probably be the supplier, the EU supplier doing that. That will obviously have to have been done since 1st of January, reporting that these customs requirements in place. And then the import and entry summary declarations will start to come into force at the point of entry for the UK. So, uh, you know, if you are moving your good via Dover, you will need to kind of do the customs and entry summary declarations before that good starts to move. Uh, and you know, it kind of gives you a bit less flexibility to kind of shift routes or, or shift the loads that's going off the wagon because they will need to kind of match up to what's on that customs entry before it moves. Now, if you're moving by a row row location, you'll have to use the GVMS system, which is the kind of replica to what the UK government's created to what the French have uh, implemented at the uh, Calais port, which essentially reduces down all the various customs move reference number into a goods uh, movement reference, uh, kind of condensing them down to kind of a fewer barcodes uh, or, or numbers to kind of make it easier for the ports to check. You also make, need to make sure that all of the rules of origin claims of VATs in order at the point of entry. The goods will then enter the UK that if it's a, a sanitary or five sanitary product, it will have to enter via a BCP, noting the easement for the plant uh, regulated parts until 1st of March, but has to go to the BCP to present for um, IP and physical checks. On those ones, uh, and then once they have cleared those checks, they will have they, they, you will then be a free circulation into the UK. Uh, so that's kind of a, a rough overview around kind of what the two processes, the main processes and changes are going to feel like on the first of October, first of January. And then there, so while there's been uh, you know kind of a, a plethora of new information from government on this, there is really quite a number of gaps understanding of what we feel are the kind of import requirements for food and drink, and we have actually written to. Um, George Eustace on this setting out our concerns in full, which I'm uh, happy to share with anyone interested in that. But, you know, kind of our areas of concern really are fivefold and five areas. So on the first one is around the kind of certifying process and the actual capacity of OVs. So we've heard a number of concerns around the actual ways EU official veterinarians in various member states can do it. It doesn't look like um, it's in accordance with the current official controls regulations that the UK has copied and mirrored. Uh, and there's a bit of concern around what happens if that you know doesn't work on the first of October. We've also got some concerns around the actual capacity of EU veterinarians in member states to kind of actually do this. So there's both the numerical concern, but also the kind of time constraints where a lot of member states seem to be operating on a nine-to-five basis, uh, which doesn't work for modern supply chains that operate on a 24-hour basis. Uh, second one is around the board control posts. Uh, you know, these will be the things that will be needed on the first of January. Uh, to do the actual physical checks in the UK. Uh, you know, it, it's probably fair to say a number of these are holes in the ground at the moment where the port has the, the, you know, the necessary infrastructure hasn't been built. And in particular, some of the West Coast ones, you know, they're not in the hole on the ground. They haven't even found a hole to put the port in. Um, so there's a bit of a concern on, on those ones. Third is around the kind of secure corridor process um, to get the, the products from the point of entry to the control post to do the check. So a number of the BCPs will be inland sites. I'm thinking particularly of, you know, the, the sites at Dover or in from Holyhead are going to have to be done inland. And it's going to be the process around how you get your lorry from the, the actual point of entry of the port where it comes off the ferry to that inland checking process and what, you know, you have to tell your hauliers to do to get that, you know, 
a big concern on the 1st of January was, you know, all is effectively just wandering off and going straight to the destination without doing any, any of the physical checks. And what that means is if you haven't done the physical check, that good is not legally in free circulation in that country. Uh, fourth is around the listing process. So this is getting all of the EU approved establishments listed in on IPAS, you know, to make sure that they can kind of do all the pre-notification or, or are essentially compliant on that. Um, so what happened on 1st of January for UK to EU movements was the UK presented the list of their establishments to the EU. Those were all then uploaded and listed on traces. We don't yet have any visibility on what the process is for the other way round. We're getting asking for clarity from government on that one. And the last one is around the pre-notification times. Uh, so we think there's going to be sufficient flex on the 1st of October because there's going to be no physical customs hold. But from the 1st of January, the big concern around the 24-hour notification requirement just doesn't work for a lot of um, operators. Uh, you know, it just it, all it means is you've got lorries waiting around before that time clocks down, which simply doesn't work for traders uh, moving stuff in one uh, supply chain. So those are kind of a, a rough overview around the border operating model and the concerns that we're probably desperate on to kind of clarify to us. Uh, I'll move on to Northern Ireland now. There's been an equal amount of activity on this one. So as you all have all probably seen, the UK published its command paper in the same week before the operating model came out. I think it was about the day after. Um, and we produced a summary of this. It could be found on FTF's website for members. But to give you kind of a rough overview around what the key points were in, in that command paper, I mean, there was quite frankly a lot of battle by UK ministers, you know, kind of making other excuses. But these are the kind of real key points around what the UK has essentially put the paper around what its concerns and way forward are for the, uh, the way forward on the protocol. So the first was around the UK clearly feels that the protocol is having a disproportionate impact. You know, there's concerns around many GB suppliers just walking away, so they referenced a survey in that command paper around, you know, 30% of small businesses are already saying they're going to reduce their movements into Northern Ireland, just walk away from it because of the, you know, it's just too tough, too complicated to make viable for their movements. Um, secondly, around, you know, the UK clearly feels the criteria for Article 16 has been met. There has been trade diversion, there's a possibility of societal and economic impacts, which is the, the very language that is mentioned in Article 16. So they feel that they've got, uh, you know, a good case to make it, but they don't think it's the right way forward. Again, they've heard the concerns around acts of unilateralism uh, and they refer to this multilateral way. Um, and then around, you know, the next key chapter is around, you know, find what the UK thinks the, the key key concerns that need to be addressed are. Now, these pretty much are, you know, removing the barriers on GB to NI trade, the removal of the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, um, and increased data sharing to kind of make it a more risk-based uh, protocol rather than kind of these are the rules, deal with it protocol kind of in that way. And then in the next chapter is how the UK seems to want to get you know kind of achieve these aims in that so you know the, the real headline asked probably is around the extension to the not at risk criteria that applies to tariffs so if at the moment for tariff purposes if you can show and demonstrate that they're going to stay in northern ireland you don't have to pay the duty or make the rules of origin claim what the uk is saying is that they want to apply this to the customs controls and fps controls as well so if you can prove it stays in northern ireland you shouldn't have to do any of the customs or FPS certification requirements. Um, they then want to look at um, kind of a mix of labelling proposals and market surveillance to make sure that the EU has the necessary um, confidence that products aren't leaking to the single market. Um, I think, you know, at a point of view from FTF, we're very much steering desperate away from any sort of labelling and proposals, noting that it's just too complicated and tricky to implement. 
Uh, they're also looking at kind of creating a kind of a dual standard regime in Northern Ireland where if your product goes to Northern Ireland and it is to EU standards, it should be able to kind of flow freely into the Republic and elsewhere. But if you're operating to kind of the UK standards where there is a divergence between UK and EU, that product should just go to Northern Ireland and it should stay there. But they should be able to kind of circulate freely in Northern Ireland as the EU compliant ones can. So those are the kind of ways that EU kind of the UK sort of sees as the way forward. Uh, they did put forward a number of kind of initial views around how they can make the you know get to the next steps in this. These were around kind of a standstill periods on both the EU's legal action against the UK and the great periods that are currently in place and just saying, look, let's pause both of them and give us the time to kind of renegotiate parts of this and kind of allow time to talk on that one and essentially renegotiate really quite key parts of the protocol on that one. So I think the initial response from the EU has been quite muted and measured, I guess, purposely so far. They, you know, one positive has been that they have said that they will pause the legal action on the, uh, against the UK on that one. And I understand that they are currently canvassing member states on whether they, they will agree to that standstill grace period in on the great, on the grace period for SPS certification as well. So I think, you know, that I think there is a landing zone to be met on this, you know, between the UK and the EU. I think, you know, some of the kind of, Technical ones around extending not at risk probably could work. You know, I think there are things that will less work will be around the ECJs, quite a, a bit of an overreach around the UK command paper on this. We are working very closely with DEFRA around shaping their proposals that they're going to put to the EU. I think, you know, in terms of timeframes, I think, you know, really next week or this week, we'll probably hear something from the EU around that standstill period and the grace periods. And then if I think that happens, that opens up talks in September. Uh, around the kind of things that are going to, you know, replace what's in the protocol at the moment, and the key dates after that will be the EU Council uh, in October and December. But you know, nothing's guaranteed. I think the UK is probably going to make its next move by mid to late August. So, you know, really in the next few weeks, because that's what they've been told. You know, under a lot of pressure to kind of give people the clarity on this one. Um, so that's really it on a nutshell for the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and if there's any questions, my email is just there in slides. So it's luke.heinlock.fdf.org.uk. I believe I'm now passing to Pete for an update on Wales. In terms of, first I'd like to cover the political update from Wales. Uh, effectively, we're on recess until the Monday 13th of September. However, there's one specific piece of work which would be of interest to members is the committees that we, we talked about at the last webinar. The three main committees that we will be dealing with have actually called for consultations on the portfolio priorities. Uh, by 1st of September is the Economy, Trade and Rural Affairs climate change and environment infrastructure on the 10th of September and then the 17th will be the health and social care committee. What we intend to do is effectively build on the achieving success for Welsh food and drink document that we prepared in advance of the Senate election and pull together our thoughts on the three main priorities in terms of supporting the growth of a vital food and drink sector, uh, working to implement meaningful practical measures to reduce obesity and embracing green challenges, recovery and the opportunities. So we will be reaching out to members and we'll be happy to encourage you to contribute some thoughts to, to that consultation. In, ter in terms of COVID, um, Wales moved on Saturday. Uh, to, to move forward in terms of the, what's the let level zero. Effectively, the, the one main thing or the couple of things uh, to, to focus on is there's a risk assessment required for everyone in terms of reasonable measures. Now, reasonable measures has been something in place since the very start for, for businesses. 
Uh, there are specific guidance in terms of alert level zero. However, just a couple of things to point out is that the, the self-isolation exemption can be taken advantage of if you're, if you're double vaccinated. And we've actually had quite a lot of questions from members over the last week about that. Uh, please go to our website, uh, fdf.org.uk forward slash Wales, and we've got the answers to those questions. But the type of things that came up were things like the rules apply in terms of where you reside is, is whether you follow the scheme in Wales or the, or the scheme in England. Uh, however, the apps are in line, so the Track Trace Protect app has been amended in line with England so that there's less likely to get, to get pinged. And also the travel restrictions that were announced uh, last week in France, uh, Wales was actually the last country because in Wales the, the general advice is not to travel if at all possible. Um, if you've got any questions on, on the COVID area, please feel free to reach out to me, uh, pete.robertson at fdf.org.uk. So I'd like to now move on, if it's okay, Dominic, to our project propeller. So just to remind you, there's four stages of the project propeller. It's about providing, it's, it's around customs, it's around access to whether it's you want training for the staff that you've got, you need some additional advice in terms of what you need to do around customs, whether you're actually looking to find a solution for processing of documents or even moving your goods through, or also you want to in, increase the staff complement in your team. You want skills, but you actually want staff within your business. And so if I just go from an update, Dominic, go to the next slide, please. So on the training side of things, we actually started off some three main training courses, SBS export and import licenses, finding and using tariff codes, and how to access the zero tariffs from a free trade agreement stroke rules of origin. Uh, initially, the course has started in May, and it's really been building, they've been building in popularity, and we've actually extended the courses. The original plan was May, June, July, but just highlight some dates there on, on a three-date three, uh, run, 18th, 19th, 20th of August, and 8th, 9th, and 10th of September. The, the, the courses run, run in a line, and they really are effective in helping uh, colleagues or helping people understand the challenges that they have. Um, please, again, go to our website. Apologies that... It's not on the actual document there, but if you just go into our website and go into our um, events events pages, you'll find in there there's direct links to those individual training courses. And so on the other four sides, or the other two sides of the propeller processing, we well, we talked last time about the, the idea of us doing a, a proof of concept. The proof of concepts started, and actually we're finding significant number of members are interested. I think what's interesting, what we're going to be doing is the original trial was intended to be August, we're looking to, we're definitely going to extend that until September. And one of the reasons we're going to extend that in September is very much around what Luke has covered. Uh, currently, we've been very much focusing on as an export solution, but actually, if if you drop a line to customs at fdf.org.uk, you'll find that there's also the potential to use this partnership for your, for your inbound processing and your inbound deliveries, especially for anyone who imports via, via Northern France, via Cali especially. I think it, there's definitely an opportunity and worth a conversation. Um, so I would ask if you just drop us a note on customs at fdf.org.uk, one of our colleagues will get back to you just to understand the details of what you're looking for. And the same goes for Pedagogo. The Pedagogo is now uh, a, a different offering. It's more about members being able to find people and have them subsidised effectively to come into their business and actually get them trained with using the, the, the giving them trained, focusing on food and drink sector challenges, products of animal origin, and various different challenges, so that you get the you get that skills base in house. 
but you don't necessarily have to commit to it for more than six months. And actually, whilst it's uh, the cost is covered up to 25 hours, there's some stipulations. The idea is to bring some younger people into the organization and potentially on universal credit. Once again, if that's something that's of interest, because you can have it in sight, you can have it located in different areas, it's quite a, a broad uh, proposition. Again, if you'd be interested in dealing with that, the customsfdf.org.uk will definitely help you out and come back to you with any clarification. And with that, uh, I'd like to pass over to my colleague David, who will bring to life everything that's going on in Scotland. Thanks, Pete. Uh, David Thompson here. Just a very quick uh, Scotland update. Uh, as mentioned before, COVID-19 restrictions were removed on Monday. Mask wearing in public spaces and actually in the workplace still continues, despite what Nicola Sturgeon said. The, uh, the rules on mask wearing still apply uh, anywhere in the workplace. Uh, there's now revised and simplified guidance uh, um, from the Scottish Government website and uh, specific manufacturing guidance and specific Food Standards Scotland guidance have been retired. So there's just a, a simple set of guidance. If you need any advice on that, please do get in touch with me at the email address below. Um, in more positive news, uh, Scottish Government has for many years supported food processing through uh, grants, uh, in particular for capital equipment purchase, um, and they have launched their latest tranche of food uh, um, uh, company grants um, at the link there. Um, this is something that has supported a wide range of businesses uh, over many years. Um, the current scheme is for one year only until the 31st of March, and apparently um, all invoices need to have been received by that by that time. However, uh, um, if you have a project that is going into 2022, they are looking at um, uh, expressions of interest for next year already. So there are ways to deal with that. And lastly, just to highlight our ongoing reformulation project sponsored by the Scottish Government, uh, which supports small and medium-sized enterprises to reformulate their project. If you're interested at all uh, in the support and guidance that we're able to offer, please do get in touch. Um, and that's uh, enough from Scotland just now. And I'm going to, I think, pass on to my colleague, Amy Glass. Thanks, David. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick update on the Henry Dillby Independent Review to the National Food Strategy. Um, and that was published on the 15th of July. Um, as we expected, this had a key focus on diet and health and the environment. Um, and the report um, split up its recommendations under four key objectives. Um, first, to escape the junk food cycle to protect the NHS, um, to reduce diet-related inequality, to make the best use of our land, and to create a long-term shift in our food culture. Um, the recommendation that attracted the majority of the media attention uh, during the launch was the sugar and salt tax, um, and the proposal suggests that a £3 per kilogram tax on sugar and a £6 per kilogram tax on salt sold for the use of processed foods or in restaurants and catering businesses should be introduced. Um, this would apply to all sugar and other ingredients used for sweetening and is approximately the same rate as the soft drinks industry levy, which they suggest um, this would replace. Um, they, they would also apply a tax on imported uh, processed foods, uh, which would be taxed under the proposals according to the sugar and salt content when they enter the UK. The report suggests that this would be an incentive for manufacturers to reduce the levels um, of sugar and salt in products by reformulating recipes or reducing portion sizes, and that the money uh, raised from this should be reinvented to provide fresh fruit and veg to low-income families. Um, obviously, FDF 
uh, responded to the report uh, when it was published and firmly opposed the proposal for a tax in our media response and highlighted that this would not incentivise the formulation um, but would actually increase the price of food for families. Um, so that was picked up uh, widely in the media. Another key recommendation that will probably be of key interest to food and drink manufacturers is the proposal to introduce mandatory reporting for large food companies with more than 250 employees. Um, so that would be reporting on uh, the sales of food and drink, high in fat, sugar and salt, types of protein, fruit and veg, major nutrients, as well as food waste and total food and drink sales. There's been quite a lot of support for that proposal, um, including the Food Foundation and a group of investors have written a letter of support to Boris Johnson on this, um, as well as uh, many of the retailers, including Tesco, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Iceland and Co-op, who have all publicly supported this. Um, but there's many elements of that which really remain uncertain, including what would be measured, and how the data would be used, and there is also quite a bit of concern about the burden that this would bring to companies. Um, but obviously there's quite a lot of other recommendations in the report as well. There's um, some great recommendations in there relating to supporting food education in schools, supporting families on lower incomes by extending various schemes um, like free school meals and healthy start vouchers. There's recommendations to improve land use, focusing on the farming sector and to define minimum standards for trade. Um, we're also really pleased to see um, recommendations relating to innovation um, and there was also a recommendation to create a national food system data programme. Um, lastly, um, there is a recommendation to set clear targets and bring in legislation for long-term change, including a statutory target to improve diet-related health and develop a new government structure for food policy through a good food bill. Um, so just to note though, um, obviously Henry Dimbleby's report is just one input to the government ahead of its food strategy white paper which is during six months time um, and the food industry as well as other stakeholders will also be making their own recommendations uh, for the white paper. Um, on the next slide I've just summarised some of the key next steps and some key dates to be aware of. Um, so in September the Food and Drink Sector Council will be publishing its what to feed into the food strategy white paper. Um, we at FDF have been um, heavily involved with the development report, um, which will look at the key areas where the food chain can make a difference, um, working in partnership with government. On the 15th of September, Ian Wright will speak at the Westminster Forum event on taking forward the national food strategy, um, alongside other speakers from the NFU, UK Hospitality and the DEFRA White Paper team. Um, and we also have a save the date for the 6th of October for an FDF event on the National Food Strategy. So uh, please uh, make a note of that in your diaries, where we'll be discussing the Food and Drink Sector Council report and the upcoming White Paper. Um, and lastly, just to note that obviously the DEFRA White Paper um, is due to be published in early 2022. Um, so if you do have any questions about Henry's report or any of the next steps, including the Food and Drink Sector Council input, um, please do get in touch. Um, but now I'll just hand over to Mark, who's going to be giving an update on the food prices report. Uh, so yes, uh, our food prices report, Eating into Household Budgets, was released uh, on the 20th of July. 
And we got some great coverage of this uh, in the press, both in The Sun, The Guardian, The Daily Mail and The Grocer. And it's been covered a few other places since the initial launch. Um, it focused on the cost of forthcoming packaging obesity policies. So these are policies uh, not in Henry's report that Amy was just speaking about, but actually ones that are already uh, on the cards with the current government. Uh, and the cost of these um, packaging and obesity policies on industry would be 8.3 billion over the next three years. And then looking at it from a consumer angle, this would increase uh, consumers' food expenditure by 160 pound per year by 2024. And that's not including other um, impacts on price rise, such as uh, inflation um, changes uh, post-Brexit and other areas of price pressure, which are covered in the report. Uh, so the full report is available on our website. There's a link in the slides that will be circulated. If you've got any uh, specific questions about the report, do please email me on mark.harrison at fdf.org.uk. Uh, and with that, I can pass over to Griffin, who is going to talk about inclusion and diversity. So a quick update on where we are at with our inclusion and diversity policy. Our first report on inclusion and diversity in food and drink manufacturing was published last month and is available to read on our website. It looks at the current state of IND in our sector. This is done mostly through member case studies, but also drawing on some official government statistics. There's also some recommendations on how to achieve good, on, good inclusion of diversity, and um, it takes a look at the benefits of having a good inclusion of diversity policy. There's a view to revisit the report in the future based on member engagement feedback and general progress in inclusion of diversity in our sector. So if you want to provide feedback, you can read the report online and email me at griffin.shiller.fdf.org.uk. Part of the report was, as I said, a set of proposals, one of which was we're establishing an inclusion diversity network. This is an informal network for members to share best practices and their experiences of trying to implement Include diversity policy. We launched this at the FDF's IND Roundtable event, which we had last month. And that can also be viewed online and can be listened to in podcast form as well. We're intending to hold the first meeting of this network in person, if possible, in late Q3, early Q4. And there's a view to hold events every quarter, focusing on different issues. So, for example, inclusion diversity issues facing these SMEs. Um, and again, please contact me at griffin.shiller.fdf.org.uk if you would like to join the FDF IND network or just be kept abreast of what's happening with that network. And so I'll now pass on to my colleague, Leah. Um, I'm just going to briefly talk through the government's innovation strategy, which is um, But first, I'm going to revisit its predecessor, the industrial strategy. That's just we're allocated for four years in three waves and focusing on things. The transforming food production challenge fell under the umbrellas of clean growth and meeting net zero targets. 60 million pounds were invested into tech for new food production systems. And as with other streams of the um, industrial strategy challenge fund, the funds allocated were grant based with much funding from industry. Government is now looking to expand private sector spending. Um, Innovate UK itself is being restructured and transitioned from a grant-based organization to one focused on driving economic growth. And in line with the government's uh, new innovation strategy, much of the planned increased spend on R&D to 2.4% of GDP by 2027 will be coming from the private sector. 
Um, it is not yet clear exactly how financial support will be distributed and allocated going forward. However, through the new innovation strategy, the government has committed to an additional £22 billion with the rest of the 2.7% of GDP coming from the private sector. It is reiterated several times um, throughout the strategy that focus should shift to business-led innovation with new technologies developed to serve a purpose or fill a consumer need that industry has identified. In addition to the Strength in Places Fund, £25 million for the Connecting um, Capability Fund will be given to University Business Innovation, and eight new prosperity partnerships will establish business-led research projects with £59 million from industry, universities, and government. Similar to the approach taken with the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, so-called missions, which are specific targets to correct societal challenges, will be determined so funds can be allocated accordingly. Missions will be decided by um, the new National Science and Technology Council, which will be chaired by the Prime Minister and supported by the Office for Science and Technology Strategy, which will be headed by Patrick Valance in his new role as National Technology Advisor. The areas of technology focus lead on from the areas of focus in the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, um, such as clean growth and the data economy. Of greatest relevance to our sector will be advanced materials and manufacturing, computing, energy and environment technologies, as well as robotics. On this uh, slide, I've just listed some of the aims within the strategy, which are most relevant to our sector and, and the work that FDF does around automation and digitization. Um, FDF will be attempting to influence um, how and where funds from the new strategy are allocated. So if you have any um, concerns, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. My email is at the bottom of the slide. Um, thank you very much. I'll be handing over to Tanya. Good morning, everyone. Um, just a very brief update on the Lifetime Skills Guarantee. Um, this was a, a scheme announced by the government as part of the plan for jobs last year um, and as part of the effort to support fully funding uh, retraining of adults for a level three qualification. Uh, so uh, in September last year, they announced 400 courses that were eligible for the lifetime skills guarantee. Um, and we noticed that there were no food and drink manufacturing specific qualifications within the list. So for the last um, six, seven months, we've been lobbying uh, the Department for Education quite hard and formed a coalition with the National Skills Academy for Food and Drink, um, British uh, Meat Packing Association, and a few other groups in order to um, speak to DfE, get some officials in the room. And last week, two courses uh, have been added to the Lifetime Skills Guarantee under the manufacturing heading. Uh, one is a level three diploma in food technology, and the other one is in food technology and management. Um, this is kind of the start of the work on this. Um, the government recently uh, released a consultation on uh, the National Skills Fund, which includes a lifetime skills guarantee. So FDF will be reaching out to members uh, in the next few days to start putting together our position um, and a response on that. If you have any uh, questions or would like more information, please contact me at tanya.barringer at fdf.org.uk. Uh, and I will now hand over to Ian Wright. Thank you very much, Tanya. Uh, and good morning, everybody. As you can see, as ever, there's a huge amount of work going on uh, here in FDF, even though we're in the middle of what I described to the President's Committee the other day 
as one of the most uh, languorous uh, summers I can ever remember in terms of government engagement. Uh, I think that's entirely understandable after 18 months of enormous uh, activity and exhausting uh, work. But I do think it's important to understand that this is only a brief respite in what is a kind of assault on our industry, not, not in a, a pejorative sense, but uh, there will be a legislative and regulatory assault on us during the autumn uh, as a load of uh, regulatory activity, um, legislative activity and other government intervention which has kind of been built up over the last 18 months while COVID and before that and alongside that Brexit were taking priority. And now we're going to see that that whole series, that, that, that kind of tidal wave of activity break across us. And it does mean that not only are we and the FDF Secretariat going to have to be very, very vigilant uh, to make sure that we don't drop anything given the huge, as you will have just seen, waterfront, the very, very wide waterfront of activity that we face. But also I'm very clear that members will have to keep a very close eye on this. Now we'll be doing as much of that as we can for you. But the truth is that there will be things that will be affecting individual businesses differentially. And it's very important that you keep uh, clear on what is and what isn't important because you won't be able to do everything. I know from my experience when I was sitting in your seat there were, even with a lot of resources that we had at Diageo, we couldn't do everything. Um, it will be very important that you prioritise what is most critical for your business and its uh, profitability, but also that where you think you can't do anything, you lean into us and make clear to us that, that, that you're expecting us to respond or to engage on your behalf on particular areas. And the more you can tell us that, the better. I only want to say one other thing, really, which is to say that um, I do think that the, the, the emerging story of the summer is, uh, clear, is absolutely clearly the one about labour shortages. I think those labour shortages have been characterised and particularly kind of built around the notion that it's, uh, it's all about HGV drivers. Well, it is about HGV drivers. We are 100,000 HGV drivers short, and that is beginning to have a material impact on the availability of product, uh, both to manufacturers from suppliers and to retailers and uh, hospitality from manufacturers. That isn't gonna uh, appear, at least in most cases, as empty shelves, and it certainly isn't gonna appear as running out of food. But it is already eroding choice in a pretty, pretty significant way. And although many retailers have got the techniques to cover the shelves with other products, what they can't do is, is, is supply the choice. And I think we are going to see more and more of that begin to erode. And where it will net the next stage of this is where it begins to work back into ingredient supply. And that, again, will erode choice because it will mean the number of SKUs that any particular manufacturer can produce at any one time is going to get particularly significantly impacted. It does look as though the pandemic is beginning to abate. Uh, that's good news because there are there have been a number of examples where it's had a really serious effect on manufacturing, uh, and those will continue a little bit, I think. Um, I think we may we we saw at the weekend a story that the the army was going to be drafted in to. Um, uh, 
buttress food supply. I'm a little bit skeptical about that for two reasons. One is that there are only 2,000 HGV drivers in the entirety of the military. And if we are, as we believe, 100,000 drivers short, it's not going to make a massive difference. Um, the other is that, that I would expect that what the government would do if it is to bring in uh, military and others to drive vehicles is that it would prioritise public service. So prisons, hospitals, schools, which are potentially impacted by delivery driver shortages. And I think that's where it may happen. And we may hear something about that this week. As some of you will know, there's an emergency food resilience industry forum call on Thursday, where we may hear more about this. I want you to rest assured that the FDF is doing everything we can to bring these issues to, uh, to the attention of and get resol resolution from government. Um, I, I think the government, certainly DEFRA, absolutely understands the scale and concern about labour shortages and incidentally about food price inflation. Uh, and I think it is struggling to make those uh, concerns manifest for other parts of government. Uh, on labour shortages, I do think these are structural. I think some of them are to do with Brexit and people going home and the Office of National Statistics says that it doesn't actually know how many people have gone home and therefore it certainly doesn't know how many haven't come back. Uh, but it's clearly a, a group of over a million, maybe as many as two million people who are not in the workforce at the moment. We also have the continued but continued but beginning to unwind impact of furlough. But most important, or as importantly, we have this huge group of people, maybe as many as 400,000 people, who have moved to work in online retailing, from, uh, possibly from hospitality, possibly from elsewhere in the sector. That is a permanent movement in my view. It's, those are not people who are going to come back. Those jobs that they're doing in, uh, in places like Tesco and Amazon are better jobs or at least better paid and, and better hours than the ones they've had previously. So we need to look very closely at the structural dimensions and dynamics of what's just happened to us. Um, and I think we don't understand those well enough. And that is why I'm a bit reluctant. I'm all in favor of emergency visas, but I do think, and I think the shortage occupation list, if, it, if the government were prepared to do something might be helpful, but they're not prepared to do anything. Uh, I think it's gonna take some pretty radical thinking on our part to work out what we do about this, just as it is incidentally on inflation. Uh, and I think inflation is gonna be a siren call into the second half of the year and into the final quarter. The Bank of England now says that inflation is going to hit 4% in the next couple of months. I think we think uh, within the food industry that it's going to be higher, although there are some mitigating factors. And I think we think it's going to be sustained. And I think that is a concern, both in terms of the impact on the economy itself, but also the very significant impact uh, that that will have on the poorest in the community and on the pr pr prospects for success of the government's levelling up agenda. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the second half of the year, and particularly as we go into the final four months uh, in two or three weeks' time. Thank you, Ian. So just to wrap up with the last couple of points, uh, we've got a couple of uh, events, actual physical events taking place in September to look forward to. So uh, do take a look at our events page on the website uh, if you'd be interested in joining 
either the Future Leaders Networking Reception in September or the FDF Awards on the 16th of September as well. The date of the next webinar has been set. It starts at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, the 21st of September. If you've got any issues that you'd like us to cover on that uh, particular instalment, do get in contact with me. Uh, slides and recording of this webinar will be available on fdf.org.uk shortly. Uh, and of course, uh, podcast will be created from all of the presentations that you've heard today. So do sign up to the FDF's Passionate About Food podcast, which is available on all major platforms. As a final uh, point that was missed earlier, I'd just like to remind members that we are in uh, at, at present surveying members for their views on FDF's positions on environmental and sustainability agendas. Um, so please do respond to those surveys. Your input is hugely welcome. If you've not received those surveys, do get in contact with me. Uh, and of course, uh, contact details for all of our presenters are available on this final slide. Should you want to get in contact with anyone to uh, ask any further questions on anything you've heard today. Thank you all very much for joining us. And just to echo Ian's words, do enjoy the rest of the summer. And look forward to speaking to you in September. The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors.